Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. And I'm Zach James, occupying stolen Lenape lands as well. Thanks for joining us today for another Q&A episode. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not already receiving our newsletter, we hope that you'll go to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. All newsletter subscribers have a chance to win signed copies of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and the accompanying workbook during each and every Q&A episode. Yeah, please connect with us through the website. And thank you to those who have already subscribed. We couldn't do what we do without you, especially these Q&A episodes, people who subscribe and call in and write in with questions. And we couldn't do what we do without all the wonderful people who are willing to speak to us about their personal and professional lives and experiences. People like our guest today, whose voice you'll recognize from both ageism and abuse and the overcoming ageism through intergenerational connections episodes. So today we have Lena Macaroon with us. Lena Macaroon, MD, MS, is an assistant professor of geriatric medicine and Pepper Scholar at the University of Pittsburgh and a core investigator at the VA Pittsburgh Healthcare System Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion. Dr. Macaroon's research focuses on social determinants of aging health and elder abuse. Specifically, her current work aims to broaden our understanding of multifaceted contributors to elder abuse risk and susceptibility in order to improve elder abuse detection in the healthcare setting. Her goal is to develop evidence-based interventions to address elder abuse and improve health outcomes, safety, and quality of life for this population. Dr. Macaroon completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Pennsylvania, MD at Weill Cornell Medical College, and MS in Health Services at the University of Washington School of Public Health. In addition to her research, Dr. Macaroon loves caring for older veterans in her geriatrics clinic at the VA. She serves on the board of directors for the American Geriatric Society, where she is co-chairing the society's intersection of structural racism and ageism in healthcare initiative, and is an associate editor for the journal Innovation in Aging. So, Lena, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Darylise and Zach. It's so wonderful to be with you again. Indeed. Yes, Lena. And uh, we're so grateful to have you here uh, and for the work that you've been doing. Can you share a bit more about you know, how you became interested in this field of geriatrics and some of the work that you're, you're currently executing? Sure. Um, I wish I had some intentional story to tell you about how I knew from a young age that I was going to be a geriatrician, but that is not my story. I'm kind of the product of many chance encounters and influential experiences that kind of pushed me in this direction. So when I was a medical student, I actually thought I wanted to go into women's health and OBGYN. I was really interested in international health, but ended up kind of feeling a little bit more like my niche and my people were in internal medicine. So went into internal medicine, not knowing what I would do, and then had an influential mentor named Eric Wadera at UCSF, where I did residency, who encouraged me to consider geriatrics because it aligned with a lot of the things that I was interested in, which was thinking about people and taking care of people in healthcare holistically rather than focusing in on any 
one organ system, let's say the way a cardiologist would or a pulmonologist would, but thinking about kind of both the social aspects that influence health and the holistic approach to who is this person, what's important to them, and how can I as their healthcare provider help them achieve those goals. The other thing I was always really interested in was how factors outside of traditional medicine, so the places and people and other social factors that interact with all of us on a day-to-day basis, how those things influence health. And I think what I saw was that those sorts of things are actually, they're important for everyone throughout the life course, but they're especially important for older adults. And the more I kind of thought about geriatrics, it, it just really seemed like it aligned with a lot of the things I was interested in. And then after I started uh, and did my clinical training in geriatrics, I knew that I wanted to get more involved in leadership roles or health systems influence because in addition to the really, really satisfying one-on-one clinical care, I also wanted to impact the systems that I was practicing in and that my patients were getting care in. And as I pursued more research training, I realized and was exposed to several really influential mentors for me, Mark Lax, Tony Rosen. These are physicians in New York who focus on elder abuse and who, again, kind of opened my eyes to how elder abuse in many ways is the culmination of a lot of social and systemic vulnerabilities that can lead to a really problematic situations for older adults who experience abuse or neglect. And so it's quite an understudied area within healthcare. It has a really big impact on the quality of life and safety and health outcomes for older adults. And it's a really common problem. And so I was just drawn to how important it is, how understudied it was, how complicated it is. Some days I kind of regret how complicated it is when I'm, you know, struggling with my work. But yeah, I just, I thank so many influential people along the way who nudged me and pushed me in different directions to landing where I am now, um, which is working in a really, I think a very stimulating area, an area with a lot of need and a lot of potential to have positive impact. Oh gosh, thank you so much for that answer, Lena. And, you know, something that you touched on just now and something that I've been thinking about ever since I interviewed you for the main episodes about the intersectionality of abuse and ageism is, you know, I've thought a lot about various abuses and Zach and I have thought a lot about just abuses that are perpetrated against people. Um, You know, it's, it's a huge amount of the work that we do. But one of the things that really stood out to me is that the abuses perpetrated on older people, both overt and subtle are actually something that I think, I think everyone should be invested in eradicating all of the isms and the phobias that are part of our society. But I think ageism is one that each of us has a personal relationship with and a personal investment in that goes beyond just a social justice issue, but it really is something that might impact all of us throughout our lifetime. So can you talk a little bit more about like how, yeah, like how ageism shows up in the course of folks regardless of the other identities that they hold. Yeah, I'll say that in listening to the two podcast episodes in preparation for this conversation, I actually learned a lot. So I appreciate, you know, and and one of the areas where I realized maybe I misspoke or misstepped when we spoke is when I said that ageism is the only ism that everyone will experience 
if we live long enough, if we're lucky enough. And I realized in that moment that the way I was conceptualizing ageism and the way that I interact with ageism on a regular basis as a geriatrician, since my focus is on older adults, only thought about ageism as it affects the older age spectrum. But so many of the people you interviewed also brought up the fact that children experience ageism, that any age, if you're judged or treated differently or experience bias based on your age, that is ageism. And so I say that because I think that that has to do a little bit with how I'd answer your question, which is that like any ism, we think of isms as something experienced by other people towards us or towards the person with that identity or identifying characteristic. But there's also so much about how we internalize those things as well, right? So for example, as a child of immigrants, I'm a first generation American from the Middle East. I very much, I think to some extent, internalized biases or perceptions about what it is to be like a Middle Eastern immigrant in the U.S. that actually made me have negative self-perceptions of myself. And I know from talking to friends of mine who are Black, friends of mine who are, you know, from different gender identities, things like that, we can all very much internalize the isms of other people. Now, in that regard, ageism, it is probably the only characteristic that we all share, which is that we are all aging all the time. And whether we are, you know, at what stage on that spectrum we are is different, but the the commonality is that we are all getting older all the time. And I think that it may be a little bit harder to appreciate the direct ways that older adults may experience that when you, let's say, are in your 30s or 40s or 50s. But what we do already experience at that point is probably some of the fear of getting older, the negative perceptions that we have even about ourselves of getting older. I looked in the mirror the other day and saw a white hair. What did I do? I pulled it out. I didn't want that white hair there. And that even in of itself, right? Because what does that white hair represent? And so it just, you know, it reflects to me that even people who are so engaged with dismantling ageism, it is so inherent from the moment that we are born. It is so interwoven in everything that it's very, very hard to disentangle. And I think I'm still learning every single day the things that I do or the things that I say or the things that other people do and say that perpetuate and further embolden these types of attitudes. But yeah, it really is something that does impact all of us in ways that probably varies as we kind of travel throughout the life course. Yeah. Well, and you know, and when you mentioned learning all the time, I think one thing that I've realized in doing these episodes is what an age segregated society we live in and how often, you know, people don't learn from from one another in in ways that would be productive. And so being that you are a geriatrician, being that you work in the in the areas of interest that you do, what's something that you wish, Lena, that more people knew about the unique needs of older folks? You know, it's hard. In geriatrics, I think we're often like straddling a line where we want people to know that older adults do have unique needs and are different in certain ways. And you have to think about and approach them differently than you would, at least from a medical and health perspective, than you would, for example, a 40-year-old. And at the same time, I want people to know that older adults are super diverse and like you can't put them all in one bucket. So it's like I often struggle actually with how to communicate that, how to communicate both the heterogeneity, but also the uniqueness at the same time. I would say that 
the needs that you have and the desires and the hopes and the dreams, a lot of that doesn't change just because you're older. But what happens as you get older, and this is a systemic kind of like societal failure that our society is not structured to support the changing functional and cognitive needs of people as they age, we end up siphoning older adults oftentimes who do start having more unique needs related to physical function or related to cognitive function altogether in places that kind of assumes that all their needs are the same or that their desires are all the same or that even worse, that they no longer have like hopes or desires or different things that they want to be doing or seeing um, and that they would be satisfied, for example, only interacting with other older adults who have kind of like similar functional limitations or similar cognitive limitations, which is certainly not the case. So I guess what I would want people to know is that when you are thinking about an older adult, it's not that it's so different than when, you know, the way you think about anyone. It's just that they're more likely maybe to have a complex array of circumstances that is impacting how they exist in the world that needs to be taken into consideration. And that's going to be very different from person to person, kind of regardless of their age. And I think it's just that it's more common that if you meet two 30-year-olds, it's more common and more likely that those two 30-year-olds are functionally more similar. I mean, this is still a generalization, but like that they're probably both able to to walk pretty easily and to drive somewhere or take the bus somewhere, get to where they need to go pretty easily or do the basic tasks that they need cognitively to kind of manage their life. And that's not always the case with an older adult. So you kind of have to like assess that and not necessarily make assumptions one way or the other. Take for us to fight it To realize that we all are one Make unity and inner peace The only reason Cause we need better Need so much better We deserve better Red, One thing that stood out to me was kind of how age segregated our American society often is, which you just mentioned again in your response. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of intergenerational interactions, you know, and whether in your life or or in your work? Definitely. So there are like numerous unique programs that actually really try to harness the power of intergenerational interactions, recognizing how valuable it is. For example, there are housing situations that house like older adults with college students or house like a daycare within like an assisted living facility so that bi-directionally they're benefiting. So like the kids are seeing these older adults and they can benefit from them wanting to play with them or kind of their wisdom or telling stories or things like that. And then vice versa, you know, the older adults benefit from seeing the kids and playing and the laughter and the youthful joyfulness that happens there. And there's lots of evidence that there is a lot of benefit on both sides when those sorts of things happen. 
I actually am not someone who grew up close to grandparents or anything like that. And I was always very jealous of my friends who kind of like had access to grandparents and people from other generations in their life more easily. But as was highlighted by some of the guests in your podcast, you gain a lot throughout living a, you know, a long life in terms of life experience, perspective about, you know, kind of things that do and don't matter and why they do or don't matter, wisdom, uh, which I think is kind of that perspective and accumulation of experience. And so there's a lot that people from different generations have to offer each other just in terms of that lived experience. But then I think we also live in such different times that like having had your your teenagehood in a different generation when the world looked very different, I think has something to teach or add to generations now that have their youth in a world that is completely altered from the world that if you're 15 now, the, the world that your grandparents lived in when they were 15 is so, so, so different. And so what can we learn from each other in that regard? I mean, I just had a patient today who I saw, and and I saw him via video visit, whose grandson helped connect him to the technology so that he could be sitting in his own kitchen and having his doctor's appointment with me. And how wonderful is that? And his grandson was sitting with him the whole time and helped him make sure that he could hear me correctly because he had some hearing impairment that made it a little difficult for him. But it was kind of this great opportunity where because they are close and have this intergenerational family that supports each other and is there for each other. He got to benefit from the tech savvy of his grandson. And I have no doubt that his grandson benefits from um, a lot of the things that he has to offer. So it is so valuable, but I think it's something that's hard to quantify or make tangible, which is probably why it's so easy to undervalue. And especially I think in the United States where people, at least before COVID, have been super mobile oftentimes move away from their families or maybe more career focused and very independently focused. I think it's been very easy to lose sight of what the value is in maintaining connections to people from different age groups, different generations, whether that's within family unit or outside of an extended family unit. It's something that we maybe are experiencing the effects of without having realized the deterioration of that along the way. Something that I was thinking about too, in terms of you talked about the things that we lose sight of and overwhelmingly, as I was doing some reporting on, you know, focusing and primarily we focus this episode on older and younger folks and not so much in between, but I was thinking about how the intersections of marginalization can really impact people over the course of their lifespan and some of those social determinants of health outcomes. And that was something, Lena, that you and I touched on in our interview. And I I would love for you to speak a little bit more to that, like how the various ways that people are marginalized or maybe discriminated against or maybe certain barriers throughout their lifetime, like how those things become more and more impactful and or the the buildup of those factors over the the lifespan. Because I feel like that was something that we talked about and I would love for you to share with our audience. Sure. So on the one hand, it's relatively simple. Like I think that there's one way where we could not overcomplicate it, which is just that 
experiencing negative stressors, whether it be from experiencing racism or homophobia or xenophobia or anti-LGBTQ bias and discrimination, the longer you experience those negative stressors, the more of a negative impact they're going to have on your health. And when I say health, I mean holistically, your mental health, your spiritual health, your overall well-being, your sense of self. And so just in that regard, living longer with those experiences can make it such that it's potentiated over time. So that's a very, in a very simplistic way. It's, of course, much more complicated than that because we know that it's not just additive. Identities interact with each other. And also there's generational effect, right? So the experience, for example, of being gay now is different than maybe what the experience was of being gay 10 years ago, 20 years ago when gay marriage was not legal, or 50 years ago or 100 years ago, right? So like the stigmatization, the bias, the discrimination may change over generations. Similarly, the experience of being Black in America changes in some ways, good ways, in some ways, not good ways, like not actually changing as much as we'd like to see it change. But I think there's also that generational effect. So for example, I work in the VA. I take care of almost exclusively veterans um, and almost exclusively men in my age group. Veterans are becoming more gender diverse. There's a lot of more women veterans now, but that tends to be still in the younger age categories, like the older veterans I take care of, which are mostly Vietnam veterans, World War II, Korean War veterans. Um, it's still mostly men. Their experience, what it's like to be Black in the military back in the 60s, really influences their subsequent experiences and interactions with VA healthcare, with healthcare in general. I have patients who are in their 80s and 90s who are gay and who tell me, and I ask, when did you feel comfortable starting to tell people that you are gay? And they say, I'm still not comfortable. You know, this is something that they grew up with thinking it's just, this is not okay. This is not something that, you know, is an okay part of my identity because of more broad societal perspectives that thankfully we are continuing to evolve. But I think there are certain identities that because of the way they were like even more stigmatized, even more discriminated against, even more demonized in earlier generations, the trauma of coming of age with those things and in that point in society, you can't undo it. it or it's very, I, I would say it's very hard to undo some of that trauma. And so we do see that in a lot, I think my experience is that there's a lot of intersection of those identities. And I see this also a lot along gender lines. So the experience of sexism is also so prominent in the U.S. and was much more overt in prior decades. It obviously is still prevalent now, but I think the ways in which people experienced it in the past perhaps was even much more overt. So I'd like to say, you know, who knows, maybe, you know, in 50 years from now, 75 years from now, 100 years from now, the ways in which older adults, the intersectionality and the ways in which these intersecting social determinants and these identities might influence them to a, a more equal degree for, for younger folks, because maybe the, of that generational effect. 
But I would say discrimination and bias are also just one type of social determinant of health. There's certainly all the other ones like high quality education and stable jobs and stable housing and environmental exposures and so many other things that, again, if you just think about being exposed to those stressors over a lifetime, as opposed to a shorter exposure, you can kind of start to see how the impacts of that are felt to a greater magnitude in older adults who may have experienced those things at varying points in their life and still managed to reach older age. Because honestly, we see a lot of people who experience these things don't make it to older ages. I mean, there are massive discrepancies in longevity based on different categories of social, you know, experiences of different social risk factors. I'm definitely a uh, strong believer that trauma, when it goes unchecked or undealt with, can lead to a shorter life. And, you know, again, especially if you're harping back to the 60s and the 50s and the the 40s, there's a lot of trauma going around yes, for a there lot is. of different communities and groups. So yep. I fully, fully get that. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical, and a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity, or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming, to faculty education, to collaboration with various 
corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Lena, switching gears just slightly, tell us what, what do you do when you notice that someone, maybe it's a patient of yours or, or anyone really, is being victimized by ageism? And, you know, how can listeners deal with that if they suspect someone they know is being discriminated against? I think that the people I have to fight ageism in the most are oftentimes my own patients. I can't tell you how many of my patients say, oh, I can't use a cane. That'll make me look old. Only old people use walkers, right? Or, you know, and I have to constantly be deconstructing these ideas that my own patients have or that older adults have about what it is to be old and what's acceptable and not acceptable about the aging process. So it's so funny that you say that because, you know, like even today I had, you know, in my clinic this morning, I was even, I was dealing with this with a patient or people who don't want to wear their hearing aid because that's for old people, you know, but I think that what can other people do if they notice that someone is experiencing ageist attitudes, the hands of someone else? I think first and foremost, allyship is really important, right? So if you start paying attention to this, you will notice it everywhere. And I think the first step is always to acknowledge and call out things when you see them. And it doesn't have to be in an adversarial way or confrontational way, because again, this is something that we all have inside of us. And so I think that building on that perspective and knowing the empathy of kind of like, I get where this person's coming from, or like maybe a year ago, I could have seen myself saying something like that can help you align yourself with that person and, and help them be in a growth mindset. But I think calling things out is really important, whether that be one-on-one actual personal interactions is the way that people grow and change the best. But in addition, those of us who have wider platforms, whether it be on social media or in other forms of media, I I constantly, for example, see articles written that are quite ageist. And so like I try to post those to my relatively small Twitter following of, you know, hey, check out this article in the New Yorker that was clearly very ageist or something that, you know, you call it out and try to build awareness and perspective that way. But I really am a believer in the fact that a big part of it is not only addressing or trying to change the hearts and minds of and again, my frame here is like thinking about ageism against older people. So I'll just I'll just say that. But not just trying to address maybe like younger people who are perpetuating ageist attitude and language, et cetera, but really empowering and changing the hearts of minds of older people who probably have ageist attitudes and perceptions about themselves as well. Because then they will be less tolerant and more empowered to stand up for themselves or to call it out on their own. And I'm I'm a big believer in patient education, patient empowerment, partnering with 
the communities that we want to advocate for and like helping them to be an active participant in the process rather than like, oh, you need me to come in and defend you from this ageist person. It's no, also, I want to enable you to like call someone out if they're doing something to you that's not right. Because I also think that's how you prevent abuse and neglect is you help older people recognize their value, recognize their autonomy, recognize their worth and their power, quite frankly, so that they're less susceptible to mistreatment from anyone. So you talked about the interjected ageism, and I think that's really important because someone's not going to call it out in another person if they're not working to dismantle it within themselves, right? Like if someone says something that feels very true, like I'm not going to say to them, that's not right, or you shouldn't have said that or whatever it is. So do you have any pointers? I know in the episodes, we talked a little bit about doing things like age projections can be helpful. We talked about whether it be for people to claim their age or to claim their birth year or those kinds of things can sometimes be helpful. But what are some ways that you found to be useful for people to work with their own interjected ageism and kind of Mm. dismantle some of that? That's a good question. And I'm not sure I have a great answer to that. This is that's another one of those areas where I feel like I learned a lot actually by listening to what other people had to say. I think the two things I would add, perhaps, these thoughts are kind of formulating as we're talking. One is that whatever age we are at now, we have the experience of knowing what we were like at younger ages and thinking about what we would be like at this age, I guess. So, for example, like I'm 36. And I have vivid memories of being quite a bit younger and thinking about, well, like, what am I going to be like when I'm 21 and I can drink and I can, like, you know, go out and do all these things? Or, like, what am I going to be like when I'm 25? And what am I going to be like when I'm 30? Or I kind of, like, had these perceptions of what future me was going to be like. And now that I am future me and I look back, I realize that it is just this continuum of my existence. And I kind of am, I continue to be like all those parts of myself. It's not like, like you obviously change, but it's not like I'm a different person. And and that actually has, I think, influenced me a lot in terms of thinking and understanding, like maybe what am I going to be like when I'm 70? It's like, I'm not going to be different. I'm still going to be me. And so maybe just that exercise of not even just imagining yourself into the future, but like reflecting back on your prior self and how you maybe would have imagined yourself at whatever age you are now. And that thought exercise, I think, can be helpful because, or at least for me, has been helpful. And then the other thing that I do with my patients a lot is I have them refocus on what is important to them and what their goals are. So for example, folks who often don't want to use a a walking assistive device like a cane or a walker don't want to use a hearing aid because of feelings that that will not only make them look old i i have people who i interact with older older patients of mine who actually feel like it brings into reality the actualization of old age by using a cane you somehow are giving yourself a crutch so that you maybe are even going to like accelerate your aging if you kind of allow yourself to use these assistive devices. And then what I reframe with them is, what is your goal in your life? If your goal is to be able to be as independent as possible and like walk 
to the store on your own without having to worry about falling or hurting yourself so that you can continue to like walk as much as you want or walk in the park or walk with your grandkid or, you know, whatever it is, is this going to help you achieve your goal? Similarly with hearing aids, if your goal is to be able to have a great conversation with someone and make sure that you hear everything that they have to say. Um, And sometimes I, I tell my patients what may make you seem older is like having to say like, what all the time? Like I didn't hear you. Maybe the hearing aid actually is really going to help you achieve your goal of being able to seamlessly just have a fluid conversation with someone and be able to hear everything around you or go to a concert and like appreciate the music, whatever it is. And to like then step away from those like stereotypes that you may have about yourself and just reframe as, well, what what do I want to achieve in my life? What are my goals? And then focus on that rather than maybe how you think the things that are going to help you achieve those goals, like how those may or may not be perceived or the associations that you've internalized about what those things mean about you or don't mean about you. Lana, one thing that came up a lot in this episode is how people dealt with their own age. So how do you speak about age? Like, do you tell people your age? Do you share your birth year? Like, what are your professional (laughs) feelings towards talking about age? Well, I just told you all my age, so I guess I do tell my (laughs) age. Uh, (laughs) I liked that idea of the whole birth year thing, but that was honestly the first time that I heard about that. But I liked that. It's possible, you know, that I just haven't, truthfully, I haven't reached an age yet where it's something that I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing. I think I'll always feel comfortable sharing it. Actually, this is an example of ageism against young people. If anything, in my own professional experience, usually when I share my age, it's with almost embarrassment about being young because like you oftentimes in the past maybe like looked younger than people thought I was or that patients thought I was. And this is also like where sexism and ageism interact. Oftentimes it's like young female physicians or young female nurses or young females in general in healthcare. Oftentimes like their authority or their competency is questioned. And, you know, it's like, how old are you old enough to be a doctor? You know, so that's certainly ageism I've experienced in the opposite direction. But I think that sharing your age is certainly, in doing it, you help normalize it for other people, probably. It's probably like not something that, in my experience at least, that like comes up that frequently in normal social situations. Like it's kind of rare, I think, for people to kind of just like be asking your age, although maybe they're always wondering and just not saying it. I don't know. I'm in a situation where anytime I, at least like in my job, my patient's age is just written right up at the top of their medical chart. So I never really have to wonder. And when patients ask me, I tell them, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure I have like a very sophisticated answer about that. Maybe my feelings on that will change, you know, in subsequent decades. But I think right now I just am honest with it and then deal with the whatever the fallout is, I guess, if people oftentimes maybe think I'm not old enough. Well, you know, I'm thinking too about the way that we speak for ourselves and the way that we are in this world and then the values that we impart on those coming up after us. And I know, Lena, you've spoken about like you have two young children. And I'm curious if you're comfortable talking about it, how you plan to teach your children about age and whether or not that differs from the messages you got about age when growing up, if that's something that you think about sort of shaping for them or with them. So I've thought about a lot with them how I'm going to teach them to be anti-racist and 
accepting of, you know, people from all different backgrounds, not just accepting, but also like to actively promote equity and equality in all of the interpersonal interactions that they have with people in the different spheres of their life. It's funny, I actually haven't really thought about the age one as much, except that I am very cognizant of children don't lie, right? Like little kids, this is like the beautiful and the horrible thing about them because they'll call you out on your worst things as well as you you can't hide anything from a kid. So like I have noticed, for example, with my son, some hesitation or maybe like questions of when they seeing people who might look physically different or maybe be in a wheelchair or much, much older and the way your body takes different postures or positions or kind of looks different, obviously with like wrinkles or different color hair, things like that. And I do think just with all things unknown, there maybe can be like a little bit of fear. I guess the way I do with my kids is just exposure. So like I try to expose them as much as possible, whether that's in real life, it's hard with COVID, right? Because it's like so much harder to get in-person exposures, but I try to expose them to people from like all different backgrounds who look every single different way um, of different ages, of different abilities, things like that. When you can't do it in person, I think the best next alternative are like books and media. So like we have lots of books about people from different countries and with different skin colors and different abilities. And, you know, we do have books about like grandma and grandpa and stuff, but I don't know if any of them, I, now I'm going to like go and look actually about children's books about the deconstruct ageism. I have like a nice long list of like anti-racist kids books, but I don't really have a good list of anti-ageist kids books. My guess is that that list will be pretty short, but Maybe I'll write one. I don't know. Or maybe you guys can write one. That'll be your next project. I'll be your first customer. And cartoons. And so in addition to books, I think there's like a lot actually of amazing, just like for adults, there's a lot of amazing TV right now. I think there's also a lot of amazing like children's programming available. And I think probably just as much exposure from as early an age as possible is the best possible thing you can do to because right. it's the personalization that's what undoes the bias right it's it's personalization it's knowing the person behind the characteristic that you are stereotyping thank you so much for that you know and i know we have a resources page on the demystifying diversity podcast website and so we'll put a link to that in the show notes and also <laughs> I'm going to commit to doing a little bit of research to finding at least a couple of children's books or media resources that we can link to in these show notes because I think there are book lists about you know anti-racist kids books and whatnot but there's less out there about anti-ageism resources for children and so we'll we'll dig some up I don't know that I can commit to creating awesome. any but we'll certainly <laughs> dig some up and we'll put those in the show notes for folks. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, 
Whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Lena, Zach and I are definitely going to have a few more questions for you, but I want to move into listener questions. And we have a question. The first question will be a question from an anonymous caller that Zach will play for you now. Hi, thank you so much for opening up the lines for questions. So I have a question regarding ageism, actually. I would love to know what are the effects of ageism in relation to a person's health and what type of trends do you see and how that affects people as they age and their health and just ageism in general. So thanks so much. I look forward to hearing your answer. Well, thanks to Anonymous Caller for that question. I think it's really important. I think my answer could be given in two parts. One is which, what do we know from research about how ageism affects health? And then what do we see from experience about how ageism can affect health? There's not a whole ton of research. There are some studies and you guys actually referenced, you know, one of the studies in your podcast about the report from University of Michigan. But even though older adults in general have actually a lot of resiliency and robust mental health compared to younger generations in many ways, there's certainly research to suggest that experience of ageism as you get older is almost ubiquitous. And like most people report experiencing ageism. And that experience certainly is associated with negative health outcomes. Um, In the work that I do, of course, with relationship to elder abuse, you know, we've talked about how the existence of ageist attitudes, not only in people who use violence or perpetuate abuse or neglect of older adults, but also in older adults themselves is kind of integral to enabling that phenomenon to occur, which has really detrimental health outcomes for older adults. So it's not just the physical abuse or sexual abuse or neglect, which I think everyone can very easily understand how those things would detrimentally impact health. But Even financial abuse and emotional abuse has been found to have really significant health impacts for older adults, not just in terms of things like depression, which it certainly does increase, but actually even mortality. So even financial abuse is associated with increased mortality for older adults, partially because assets like financial assets are so critical to your ability to age well in this country, unfortunately, because we have such a poor social safety net, um, particularly in older age. But also because I think of the dehumanizing experience of having someone like take advantage of you that way also uh, really impacts people's health and all the other chronic conditions that they have, which we kind of start understanding more and more about how stress and trauma impact a whole bunch of different uh, medical problems. 
So yeah, I mean, I think that ageism certainly has an impact on mental health. It certainly has an impact on physical health. The other thing to consider is how does it impact the way that you can age? So, you know, ageism has a role in the workplace in terms of forced retirement or kind of the roles that people continue to have in their jobs. We know that continuing to be engaged is really important for being fulfilled and having purpose. As you get older, ageism certainly plays a role in that. We know it plays a significant role. I mean, I would go even to the level of like thinking about the way that long-term care is funded in this country, the way that caregivers, like informal and formal caregivers are supported and cared for in this country. I think all, which are largely very underfunded, very undersupported, but yet so, so critical for allowing people to age well in this country. And I would say a lot of that, you know, again, is probably deeply rooted in ageism and again, deeply impacts people's health. So it impacts, ageism impacts it on a very personal kind of micro level. It impacts it almost at a legislative level that ultimately trickles down to health and like everything in between. Thank you so much for that comprehensive answer. I really appreciate that. And um, thank you to the anonymous caller because I Yeah, I think that is a really important question. And one where, Lena, as you said, if it impacts us on sort of impacts every level, then I think in that same regard, there are levels that each and every one of us can get involved in, in the dismantling of it, right? Like wherever we are in society, whether it's personally or on a larger scale level or legislatively or in our workplace, like there are things that we can do. So there's another question from Neka in Maine. Hello, my name is Neka and I am from Maine. I do have a question and the question is, How can someone be a good ally to both older and younger populations simultaneously as it relates to preventing ageism? Thank you. Thanks so much, Neka. Well, I don't think that there's anything that contradicts, you know, being an ally for both younger and older people at the same time. And I think the approach is actually similar, which is dissociating characteristics from age and really approaching people based on who they are at that moment, regardless of their age. And I think, like we said, you know, earlier in this conversation, one of the best ways to be an ally, I think, is to acknowledge when someone else makes an ageist statement or an ageist action uh, against somebody else in your presence or where you have the opportunity to be observing that and to challenge it. And I think actually once you assume that mindset of being aware of the way we make assumptions about people based on their age, you'll find that it kind of seamlessly ends up happening for both younger age categories and older age categories. Because once you kind of start dissociating, it almost, it kind of doesn't matter because you realize that you need to be looking at and assessing and dealing with the abilities and capabilities and characteristics and personality traits and likes and dislikes and whatever it is for them in front of you, you know, regardless of their age. And so I think the more you practice that in your own life, the more you'll notice when someone else is not doing it and the more empowered you'll feel probably to engage with those ageist actions and words that people use in a way that you can kind of start to deconstruct those for everyone. And again, you'll be so surprised that a lot of times 
the person who maybe the ageist statement or action was done against may not even have like really realized that it was ageist or have perceived it that way. And so you're impacting multiple people at the same time, I feel like when you engage yourself as an ally in that way. I love that. One thing that occurs to me too, and Nika, like what a great question, is the issue of paternalism comes up a lot, right? Like both towards older and younger people where it's like this well-meaning sort of, oh, sweetie, you don't know what's best for you, I do kind of thing that I think a lot of people can be guilty of sort of stepping into that role. And so one thing, Lena, I love earlier that you were talking about equipping people to have their own agency and make their own decisions, you know, earlier in this conversation. And I'm thinking about how paternalism actually isn't allyship. <laughs> like like the, the best way to be an ally is to, as Lena was talking about, is to really see the person as a whole full person. And I think that sometimes stepping in, even if it's under the guise of kindness or with well-meaning intentions, I think just asking the question of like, does this person need me to do this for me? And one, I'll just tell a quick anecdotal story. My mom is one of 10 kids. I'm one of 23 cousins. There were just so many of us. There were so so many of us. (laughs) And I remember one of my aunts carrying her son well past the age where he was He could have been walking. He could have been doing stuff. But like she was carrying him around because it made her feel better. And I'm not going to name her on the podcast. I don't want to like get in trouble by my family. But like, I think that's an example of ageism, right? Where it's like, oh, I love my son and I want to hold him and I want to carry him around everywhere. But it was really actually getting in the way of his development and his agency and his ability to like run around and play with other kids and do stuff to be carried far past an age where it it actually really would have served him to walk, even if it meant stumbling and falling a few times. And so I think about those things to me are actually a form of ageism, even if the intention is to be loving and kind and generous and good. It's like letting people experience life in all of its fullness and all of its messiness and kind of being willing to step in if there's a need, but not to assume need when it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. I also think probably one thing I forgot to say, obviously, like one of the first steps of allyship is just self-reflection and kind of educating yourself and like on trying to work on your own ages thoughts and biases and feelings. And part of that could be, you know, reading a book like This Chair Rocks, which is an awesome book that addresses a lot of these issues. And also just kind of spending some time in self-reflection about that or like looking at the language that we use when we talk to an older adult or a younger kid, right? Like, is it paternalistic? And then certainly looking at our own actions and and making sure not to take away agency from either younger younger folks or older folks when that's not really called for and kind of just respecting autonomy to the greatest extent possible always no i think those are really good points too thank you so much and thank you again nika for that question so we have a question from julie in new york city Hi, this is Julie from New York City. So a person's experiences are purely subjective, but is there any data to show that elders or youth are more heavily impacted by ageism than the other? Thanks. Love your podcast. My short answer to that is I don't know. 
my off the cuff, now I'm not really treading in data, even though the question was specifically, is there, are there data to support? The short answer is I don't think those studies have been done. I, I don't think we really know enough to like quantify. I will say that simply in terms of like the place older adults take in our society, the amount of our national budget that taking care of older adults as they age requires, at least from, again, like my hat as a healthcare provider, older adults certainly require and utilize so many more resources than younger adults and therefore kind of the impacts of ageism in terms of how we do or don't treat older adults, guardianship issues, elder abuse issues, dementia, which is so complicated, impacts, you know, millions and millions of people every year in the United States and kind of brings in all sorts of issues related to ageism and autonomy and independence. So yeah, there so my long answer is I tend to feel like it's kind of an issue that maybe has more like tentacles, so to speak, like in the older age groups and maybe like some more far-reaching impacts. It's obviously a huge issue on both ends of the age spectrum. I definitely agree. I think when it comes to ageism and youth, it's often looked at from a, a different perspective. The ones who are maybe being discriminated against for their younger age, usually it's because they're standing out. They're in a positive way, right? They're above and and better. They're, they're the 14 year old who's going to college. They're looked down on because the people who are looking down on you kind of wish they were in your shoes a little bit. They see the advantages that you have. There's definitely a lot to say about, you know, abuse when it comes to elders and youth. But I even look at that more so as the abuser is taking advantage of someone who's young. And that's part of the, the ageism element. And that's a big issue with the abuser. There's a problem we need to fix is definitely with that individual, where when it comes to older folks, I think it it definitely can be abuse in that form or fashion. There also could be scenarios where they just don't have the support that they need. I think we look at kids as like, we have to support them. We have to raise them till they're 18. And sometimes the older generation gets forgotten about. Not a lot of kids are coming back to take care of their parents in a lot of scenarios. And now other issues are deriving from that. So I definitely think there's a lot more when it comes to the the older demographic and sometimes ages and when it comes to kids doesn't get talked about as much because it's not as prevalent. What I can just say in the research that I've done around it is that, you know, and I love the listener's question because it seems like when we talk about people sort of in the middle of the age spectrum, I think what we're talking about is an issue of agency often, right? So younger people often lack agency to do something in the face of of abuse. They might not have the ability to articulate what's happening because they they might be pre-verbal even, you know, at that time. They might it might be happening from their primary caregivers, et cetera. And I think also often what the research and data shows is that older adults, it's a similar experience where in the event of abuse or neglect, it's often from the people who are kind of supposed to be there and supposed to be those who are are in service of them and there might not be the agency there. And I think when we think about people in the middle, generally speaking, and this is not all, always the case because there's, you know, there's there's a whole host of discriminations that people can suffer as a result of their identities independent of age. But I think I think the thing that makes ageism perpetrated against young people and perpetrated against older people 
some of the most difficult to do things about is that it's often done within the home and it's often done where that individual might not have the necessary resources to get out of that situation. Or it might be that getting out of that situation will perpetrate trauma in and of itself. So I think the more I look into these things, the more it's like, okay, well, this is a societal problem. It's not just an issue of what is happening to particular individuals, although that is super important. It's about how do we restructure society to care for our most vulnerable members who typically are older adults and or younger children because they don't maybe have, because those structures aren't always in place, right, to support and sustain people who need it. Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylis and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. We have a listener question from Amy. Hi, this is Amy from Columbus. I have a question. Um, The guests on this podcast have spoken a lot about intersectionality as it relates to identity. How does ageism impact intersectional identity and how can it impact feelings of marginalization? Thank you. So we touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but I mean, I guess just to really hammer it home and again, Uh, Sorry, I'm going to take this from the perspective of like the older adult side of things. But I just think that we really so much devalue being older and a lot of the characteristics that come along with getting older in terms of physicality and certain like cognitive abilities and things like that. Um, And it's so, so internalized that it is an added layer onto all of the other identities and experiences that people have in a way that isn't additive. You know, when we address this, there's also the generational effect. So the unique way that this presents now is that our older adults now are people who grew up in the 60s and 70s, you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And they are very unique products of that time when certain other identities were, there's a lot of gender discrimination, a lot of racial discrimination, a lot of discrimination against people who are not heterosexual. And that gets carried on into older age in in a way that, you know, continues to impact the experience of, you know, interacting with different institutions, you know, within our culture and within societal groups within our culture. And then honestly, probably the most important with, you know, is the way you view yourself and the way you have your own self-perception. 
I won't maybe elaborate too much since we, I feel like I kind of rambled on about that <laughs> earlier, earlier in the call or earlier in our conversation as well. Well, I certainly don't think you rambled. And I definitely think that we covered the intersectionality of, yeah, identities and ageism. And thank you, Amy, so much for that question. I know if it was on your heart and it was certainly on our hearts, it was probably on a lot of listeners' hearts and minds. So the next question is a question from Kathy in Pennsylvania. Good afternoon. This is Kathy from Pennsylvania. My question is, the Black Voices series on this podcast referred to lowered expectations as being one of the most hurtful forms of racism. How do lowered expectations commonly present themselves as it relates to ageism? And then how can we prevent that? Thank you so much for that, Kathy. I'll just say, Lena, in case you haven't listened to our Black Voices episode series, and I love, oh, Kathy, thank you so much for like a callback question. We did a series of episodes that were talking about discrimination against Black folks in America. And one of the things that came up overwhelmingly was people speaking about just how other people's lower expectations or devaluing of them or their work or their identities was actually some of the most painful discrimination that they experienced. And so I guess to Kathy's question, like, how does that relate to ageism when people feel devalued or others have low expectations of them based solely on age. Yeah. Gosh, I could have so much to say in response to this question. I mean, we do see this a lot. I think in our interview for one of the other episodes, I told you about something that we so frequently see in healthcare with older adults is a healthcare provider talking to the younger caregiver who, you know, happens to a family member who happens to accompany the older adult to their visit. And what is that except lowering your expectations of what like the older adult is capable of? You think they, for some reason, can't like understand your questions or answer your questions as well. So you're kind of directing your attention to the other person, which I imagine is extremely painful, right? It's like so dehumanizing. So this happens all the time, I think, for older adults. At the same time, It gets back to what I was talking about earlier in this conversation about the difficulty of straddling that older adults do have unique needs and unique characteristics and unique capabilities while at the same time being extremely diverse. And so I think my big answer is the most important thing is to just be curious. You have to go in with a curiosity mindset where you're first and foremost, going to like ask some questions and like figure out like, where is this person at? What are they capable of, not capable of, and without making assumptions? For example, low expectations with older adults maybe is are frequently seen in terms of like physical capabilities, let's say. There are plenty of older adults who are more physically fit than probably I am currently with my, like you mentioned, my two young children and currently living in Minneapolis, actually, where it's like negative 10 degrees and I can't go outside or do anything. So very not physically fit right now. But if you just kind of make the assumption about what an older adult can or can't do based on their age, you're going to oftentimes, I think, underestimate them because of all the prevalent stereotypes about the aging process and that it's one of just continual loss, like loss of function, loss of cognition, loss of beauty, loss of strength, loss of balance, loss of, you know, all these things, which is in some ways, you know, like there are kernels of truth in that that are just physiological. At the same time, 
those things may be greatly exaggerated and certainly may not apply to the individual in front of you. So I think if you approach people with a curiosity mindset and just figure out who is this person in front of me, regardless of their age, you'll guard yourself against making that mistake of having low expectations or inappropriately basing the bar of your expectations based on someone's decade of life. I do think that happens a lot with older adults. We make these assumptions kind of about what they can and can't do that are just not really based in reality. It's based on stereotypes. Thank you so much, Kathy, for that question. And Lena, thank you so much. You're giving us so many great takeaways. Indeed, indeed. And speaking of takeaways, Lena, you know, what were your major takeaways from the two episodes uh, about ageism? Ooh, I think first, I was just so inspired to kind of hear the voices of all these amazing thought leaders and activists in this area, some of whom, you know, like I never really heard of until your podcast and went and looked them up and followed their work. And I'm just, it's really great to know that there are actually a lot of people who care about this issue and are doing work to dismantle it. I think thinking about it holistically across the lifespan is really important and recognizing the connections in terms of how we and the similarities in the process of committing ageist thought processes and actions against people who are both younger or older and recognizing that this is something pervasive across the age span. And then I think realizing that it's incumbent upon all of us because it is truly maybe the most unifying ism for better or worse, and that we can all actually have a really big impact, A, because it impacts all of us, and B, because it is just so pervasive in so many different aspects of life, whether it's people pointing out the ageist birthday cards in you know the pharmacy or the impacts of the COVID pandemic and how we saw ageism play out there. So like in very grave ways and in less grave ways that actually probably still have a big impact on the psychology of people as they age. I just think to me, maybe that's even the biggest takeaway is just the universality of this, which actually can be an empowering thing because it means that all of us have skin in the game, which makes all of us stakeholders. And so we can all take a part in being part of the solution. Right. Uh, Lena, how can people, you know, support you, you know, whether it be personally or professionally? Thank you for asking that. No need to support me personally. We are all, I think, fighting the same fight. I will maybe put in a plug for a few different things and organizations that I think are doing great work in this area that if people do want to support, they can. So Darylise mentioned in my intro that I am part of a great professional organization called the American Geriatric Society, and we are leading certain efforts right now around ageism and specifically actually the intersection of ageism and structural racism in healthcare. So those who are listening who may be within the healthcare field or within aging-related research, things like that, definitely stay tuned check out publications that we have coming out on those efforts. But more broadly, the American Geriatric Society has a patient-facing, public-facing foundation called the Health and Aging Foundation that does a lot of great work around deconstructing lots of prevalent misunderstandings about older adults and older adult health, stereotypes about aging, ageism, and lots of other issues. And they really do a great job of promoting age-friendly health systems, age-friendly communities, age-friendly policies. And you can certainly 
listeners, if they want, can donate to that foundation. They do a lot of really great work. And I would just also encourage people, we talked about the Frameworks Institute and the Gerontological Society of America. Those are also great resources. The American Society on Aging also does great work in this area. So there's lots of great organizations to support. I only named a handful of them, but those are the ones that are, I guess, nearest and dearest to my heart. One other one is there's an organization called Help Age USA that is USA branch of a global international organization that works to deconstruct ageism and promote healthy aging and positive aging around the world. And they do really amazing work. And so that's another organization that I always am a proponent of supporting. They're called Help Age USA. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for all of that, Lena. And uh, we'll make sure to put some links to those organizations in our show notes for this episode. And Darylise, we have one last question for Lena. But before we get to that, we got to take a moment to give our Q&A book giveaway. Yay. Okay. This is, I love this part. So Zach and I drew a name at random before starting this Q&A episode. And Zach, if you could announce the winner. It's the amazing Kathy McDevitt. Uh, congratulations, Kathy. You've won a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and the accompanying workbook. Yay, Kathy. Awesome. We're going to send you an email to get your information, and then we'll mail you signed copies of the book and workbook. So thank you so much for being a subscriber. If you're listening to this and you haven't yet subscribed, go to our website, sign up, subscribe. You can have a chance to win. So last question, Lena, why do you do the work that you do? Why is it important to you personally? And why should it matter to others? When we interview prospective fellows going into geriatrics now, so many of them have stories of how they knew kind of from a younger age that they wanted to work with older adults because of their experiences they had with grandparents. It's such a common thread that people have had these really influential relationships with older adults in their life, most frequently grandparents, that influence them into wanting to go into a field where they would work with older adults and help older adults. And it's not surprising because it is exactly like you just said, actually, bringing out the humanity in people and demystifying, so to speak, right, is taking away that other stuff and kind of getting down to the heart of it is like, who is this person? And when you have a close personal relationship with someone, that is what you get. Um, And I think you become more aware of the other people when other people don't see them that way. I did not have that experience, but I think through my work, I've come to see how big of a problem this is and have had such an opportunity and really an honor to work with so many really remarkable older adults who in some ways filled maybe that void of where like I didn't actually have those experiences as a kid of being super close to older adults in my life. And I've ended up getting that experience through my professional work. But, you know, I've chosen to dedicate myself to this because there's just such a big need, partially because of ageism. I mean, a slight plug I'll give is that within healthcare, geriatrics is a very, very undersaturated field, despite a huge need. So at any given time, there are just so many unfilled jobs in geriatrics. The fellowship spots every year probably only 50% of them get filled. Why is that? 
probably to some degree because of ageist attitudes in, in medical students and people training, right? Like there's something kind of unsexy about taking care of older adults, even though in my opinion, and I think just objectively, it is some of the most satisfying work you could do because you're helping people through lots of complicated life events, social events, health experiences, and ushering people through that and enabling them to live their best life in the, so to speak, golden years, which now can last as long as childhood, right? Like people are living longer and longer. So this is a huge, a really long period of life that somehow as a society, we feel like we can just like neglect and somehow it'll be okay. But uh, I find it really satisfying to work with older adults and help them make these the best years of their life. And I do that in such a small way as a doctor because I'm only one very small piece of the puzzle of what's important and actually, you know, like family and hobbies and work experience and all the different things that make a life rich and fulfilled. That's my goal is to help someone be healthy enough and independent enough to like be able to engage in all that and then forget about me and forget about the doctor's office. And I think that obviously if you are experiencing abuse or neglect or mistreatment in any fashion or ageism or other types of discrimination in any fashion, you you can't do that. You can't be living your best life. You can't be kind of fully thriving. And so that's why I feel passionate about those things. And hopefully along with the efforts of so many other brilliant, passionate, dedicated activists, researchers, leaders, we'll push the needle on this problem in my lifetime. So that's my hope. And that's what gets me up every morning. And hopefully one day, you know, when I hopefully make it into the older age categories, I'll experience the benefits of all the work that we've done together. Well, thank you so much, Lena, for joining us today. Um, and thank you for listening wherever you are. If you're listening to this and you want to get in touch with Lena, please contact her. Uh, and Lena, tell us what what's the best place for folks to uh, get in contact with you? Let me just give you my cell phone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can email me at either of my work emails. So L-E-N-A dot M-A-K-A-R-O-U-N, Lena dot Macarin at VA dot gov or LKM 35 at pit dot edu. And both of those email addresses you can find, honestly, if you just Google my name. We'll make it even easier for people. We'll put that in the show notes, too. So if you have, (laughs) indeed, indeed. And if you haven't already, please uh, like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And if you'd like to ask us questions or have a comment, just call us at 844-888-8148, and we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode. Also, make sure to visit the mystifyingdiversitypodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, consulting services, and of course, our resource page. Every episode of the Mystifying Diversity Podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylis Lines. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, production and development assistant, Stuart Kranz, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. 
The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. Thank you again, Lena, so much for joining us. And thank you to the listener. Please join us next week as we dive into the subject of diversity in sports. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.